Well, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1 today. And as you make your way there, uh, what we're going to be considering today is an example, really multiple examples of extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion. As we journey through life, we all need examples that help us journey to the destination we're trying to reach. Uh, I think this is common, particularly for children, okay? As adults, we need examples, okay? We still need examples as adults, okay? Raise your hand if you need some good and godly examples here today, all right? Thank you. All the hands should be going up around the room. But, But as children, this seems to be impressed upon us maybe in a deeper way. I can remember as a kid, my father was a basketball coach. And so, uh, you know, I grew up with a ball in the crib. And then my dad got me this Nerf goal that I used to play in the living room all day, every day. And I jumped off the couch and dunked it. That was the last time I dunked, by the way, uh, was when I was four years old. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be like my heroes, the examples that I followed. You know, uh, I was a Celtics fan as a kid. You, you guys may know number, I'm wearing number 10 today because thank you. Uh, our church got uh, me and Pastor John, and Pastor Reddy, a jersey for our 10th anniversary. So even check it out from the back. You got to see that. Oh, come on, Pastor Tanner Turley in the house. Um, And so, you know, I wanted to be like one of my favorite players, Larry Bird, number 33, Larry Legend. I mean, he could do it all. He could shoot it. He could pass it. He was just a winner, played with everything that he uh, had, three-time MVP, three-time world champion. Uh, I love Larry Bird, and I want to give a shout-out to Larry Legend here today in the Celtics. But if I'm I'm keeping it 100 today and and just really telling you the truth, my favorite player, was Michael Jordan. (laughs) Michael Jordan, I mean, the greatest player of all time. We can argue about it in the lobby. I don't want to hear that LeBron mess. You can bring it in one ear. It's going to go out the other, okay? Because MJ was and is the greatest player of all time. And that's who I wanted to be like. I mean, I I could just, the the vision, my dad would give me tapes, VHS, back in, don't, you know, Back in the day, VH, and I would just watch them over and over again. I was just scissor dribble. I would just try to go out in the backyard and do it just like M- Michael did it. And then even though I couldn't jump, you know, I was like from one side of the room to the other, just, you know, scooping it up. And I mean, just wanted to be like these heroes. And then as I progressed in life and then decided to follow Jesus, what I learned is that there were some other examples that I needed to follow that showed me a vision of life, much more important than basketball, but a vision of life, of how to follow Jesus. And two of the people that that stand out in my mind as I was thinking about different examples, there have been so many in my life, thank you, Jesus, for people that have shown me how to follow you. But I think about Boyd and Susie Phillips, better known in my high school as Mr. and Mrs. P. All right, the, the two math teachers who uh, were the, the volunteer sponsors in our school of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And the FCA was for anyone in our school. And so when I moved to Shelby County as a junior in high school, I found out about FCA and I got to know uh, Mr. and Mrs. P. And, and what you would uh, love about them is that, listen, uh, they, they, never, they never like, you know, hosted a, a, a podcast or wrote books, but uh, they were just simple, godly followers of Jesus Christ who loved the people in front of them, loved the students that they cared for, showed up every week, helped us as, as students uh, connect with God and invite our friends to know Jesus. And, and as I think about the Phillips, I think about people that possessed a sincere faith in Christ that challenged me over and over and over again. In fact, just one quick story. I can remember my senior year in high school, they wanted to throw this like early morning prayer uh, meeting. And I was the president of FCA in my senior year. So like, you know, I had some input on the decisions and all this. And so we were like planning with our team. It was like, hey, let's have a, let's have a prayer, you know, gathering at like 6 a.m. I'm thinking like 6 a.m. Ain't nobody going to show up at 6 a.m. We're not praying to no 6 a.m. Uh, and so I kind of like gave some, like, I didn't say it like that, especially not to Mr. and Mrs. P. But, you know, like I wasn't for it, but I showed up because I was like, hey, you know, me and three people and Mr. and Mrs. Villa, we're going to pray. And, you know, 
the lobby of our school was absolutely packed. And I, I didn't even know what was going on at the time, but I can remember after that, just the Spirit of God in my high school overwhelming me and saying, look at you. And not just look at you, but look at them. These people have a different kind of vision. They have a different kind of faith. And God used their example to help me learn to follow Jesus. And in these stories today, we find a couple of examples. Examples of extravagant devotion. We find the first example in verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 14. Mark writes this. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, she came and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said this, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, yes, met for Massachusetts here this morning, there you go, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. As we come to the final chapters of Mark's gospel, we come to the final week in the life of Christ. Mark tells us that it was the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In other words, this was a time when travelers from all over Israel had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And this was also an opportune time for the religious leaders who knew Jesus being a faithful Jew would also make his way into Jerusalem that they could plot and scheme on how to arrest him and take him out completely by seeing to his death. And Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples were staying in a village known as Bethany. We see that in verse 3. Bethany was located about two miles from Jerusalem. And on Tuesday evening of the final week of Jesus' life, he is hosted by a man named Simon for a meal. We know that Jesus' disciples was with him, were with him, as well as some other people in the community. And as they are dining there at the house of, verse 3 calls him Simon the leper, who was most likely healed by the healing power of Jesus, the God of miracles, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, now Simon is hosting him in his home for a meal. And as the meal goes on, it says in verse 3 that an unnamed woman approached Jesus. Now, 
If we were to zoom out to the rest of the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if Mark chapter 14 and John chapter 12 record the same event, which it is likely that they are giving us the same event, we know that this woman's name is Mary, who was the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Oh yes, the Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. But Interestingly, Mark is not so focused on her name because he doesn't want us to focus on her identity. He wants us, you might want to write this down, to focus on her devotion. Mary moves toward Jesus and Mark tells us that she comes with an alabaster flask. This alabaster flask or jar would have been very costly in and of itself, probably made of a soft marble-like material that would have been imported from Egypt. And so she brings in this alabaster flask and she breaks it. And when she breaks it to open it, the aroma just starts filling the room. I mean, it would have just smelled so good to everyone in the room. And she begins to pour the oil on the head of Jesus. And as the, they see what's going on, they realize they can, they can tell just by the, the, the pleasant aroma that is feeling, filling the room that this was not like the cheap variety. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you can go to the store and you can get your little cheap variety of whatever, your, your, your perfume, your, your knockoff brands or whatever. But then if you really want the good stuff, then you've got to pay a little bit more for that. And listen, Mary is bringing the good stuff. It says in verse Three, that she is bringing an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. This nard would have been probably imported from India. And, and, and the text tells us that the, those in attendance estimate that its worth would have been around 300 denarii. One denari, denarius was a day's wages for a labor. So, so we have like roughly a year's salary in this jar that the woman starts to pour out on the head of Jesus. We begin to understand why some in the room were absolutely shocked, not because of this common gesture of hospitality, but because of the value of what she is pouring out. I just want you to picture the scene as Mary approaches Jesus and she begins to pour one ounce of, of ointment on his head and she anoints his head and then she takes another ounce and she pours it on his head and she then takes another. And, and the, the others in the room are beginning to pull out their calculators, right? It's like, hey, one ounce, that's a, that's a, that's a lot, Mary. Like, but, but two ounces, okay, that's, that's a little excessive. Okay, three ounces, we're being wasteful here now. Like, and then she empties the entire jar and their minds are absolutely blown. They cannot believe what they are seeing. They begin to ask themselves, why are you wasting such ointment? You have, could have sold this material for, for 50, 60, 70, 80,000 dollars. Think about how many poor people could have been fed and cared for with the proceeds from the sale of this ointment. That's the people in the room. But that's not Jesus. Jesus sees it much, much differently. Look at verse 6 where it says this. Jesus said, leave her alone. This is, stop. I mean, the people in the room, it tells us in verse 5, it says that they scolded her. They were, verse 4 says, indignant. They were angry. They were upset. They thought that she was taking unethical action by wasting this amount of ointment. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. What she is doing doesn't deserve your criticism. It deserves your applause. And let me tell you why. 
He first says that she has done a beautiful thing to me. This is not just a good thing. He could have chosen the word good, but he says it was beautiful. In other words, it was worth appreciating and commending. Just as you take in a beautiful sunset or a night sky, listen, you should be taking this in what she is doing to me. It is worth your attention. You should be captivated by the outrageous, shocking devotion that she is pouring out in these moments. And then in verse seven, he goes on and he says this. He says, hey, listen, you always have the poor with you. And that may seem a little callous, but what Jesus is doing here is he's echoing Deuteronomy 15, which actually calls God's people. Yes, if you count yourself as a follower of God, then this includes you and it includes me, that we should care for the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, it says that we should be generous to those in need. It's why we plan on feeding 180 families in our community Thanksgiving meals this Saturday. Thank you, Jesus. But Jesus says this, he says, listen, you can help them anytime. I mean, he wanted his disciples to help them anytime, all the time. He, he's saying, you can always take what you have, what God has blessed you with, and you can give it to the poor. But he contrasts this with what Mary is doing when he goes on to say, but you will not always have me. See, Jesus is saying, the, the poor, they are going to be present. Uh, you're going to have opportunities to bless those who are in material need, but you are not always going to have the opportunity to bless me. And what Jesus is doing here is, once again, as we've seen time and time again in Mark's gospel, he is pointing to his coming death. He is about to go to the cross and he makes this explicit. He tells us what was so special about Mary's devotion is because he is about to go to the cross and die. Look at verse eight. It says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. It is likely that Mary did not even realize what she was doing. She probably came in and anointed just as an act of love, just an act of devotion. Perhaps she knew because she was following Jesus and she believed what he said, but it is quite possible that she did not even realize the significance of what she was doing. And yet she is honoring the plan of God. You say, Pastor Tanner, why is that? Well, part of the reason is because Jesus was about to die on a Roman cross as a criminal. And under Roman law, criminals were not entitled to an honorable burial in that day. So, so Mary is doing for Jesus what he would not have had the opportunity to experience as someone who was about to die at the hands of the Romans. And Jesus says, look, her act of devotion, it, there's more than meets the eye here. She's not just showing her appreciation for me. She is anointing me for my burial that is coming in just a few days. But not only that, I mean, Jesus keeps going here because like, hey, if you're going to criticize her, I'm going to correct you. And in verse 8, he says this. He says, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. And I don't know about you, but as I'm reading that in the English, like, it's kind of, it's kind of weak. You know, it's like, it's like, sounds like uh, she gave a good effort. You know, like, she did what she could. But that's, that's not what Jesus is communicating here. If we were to look at this literally, what Jesus is saying is, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. In other words, everything that this woman had, she gave it. Everything in her capacity, everything in her possession, she gave it all as an act of sacrificial love. This echoes the widow's might that we saw a couple of chapters ago in Mark where the, the, the widow came into the, the treasury area and she drops just two small pennies in the treasury box and Jesus says she gave more than everybody. Why? Because she gave everything. And that's what's happening here. 
with this amazing woman. And then finally in verse 9, Jesus, if you can ratchet it up anymore, he does it in verse 9 because he says, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel, the good news of my life, death, and resurrection on behalf of the world, wherever this story is told, her story will be told. And with these words, surely Jesus silenced those who were in the room. What Jesus does here is Jesus holds her up as an example of true discipleship. If you want to know what it looks like, discipleship is following Jesus, how we follow Jesus. A disciple is a learner. And so if you are a learner of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know what that looks like. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is what it looks like. She's giving everything. The the word extravagant, it means to to give without restraint. This woman gives without restraint. She holds nothing back. She gives everything. When others deemed it wasteful, Jesus praised her as completely appropriate. When others harshly criticized her zeal for him, she remained undeterred. And and I don't know about you, but maybe you're hearing this story today and you're saying, I want to be more like her. I want to see Jesus as so valuable that Jesus is more valuable than anything that I value in my life. I mean, I mean, I mean, who of us, 70, 80 grand in the, in the bank, like Jesus comes and there's an opportunity and God's leading us saying, hey, yo, the, the, that, that, that number in the bank account, you need to empty it and give it to Jesus. Like how many of us are like, hey, no brainer, like I'm, I'm good. And if it's not money, it's, it's, it's our time, it's, it's our pursuit of work and ambition and all of these things, right? And, and Jesus is saying, look, she, she gave it all. She's an example of extravagant devotion. Maybe you're saying, I wish that was me. Maybe you're saying here today, that should be me. I mean, I know, I know what Jesus has done for me. And yet I just kind of like, it's not extravagant. It's not without restraint. It's like I'm holding stuff back. Jesus, you can have this much, but not all of it. And maybe just maybe some of you are saying this. Not I want that to be me, not that should be me, but you are saying here this morning, that used to be me. That, that used to be me. That, that used to characterize my life. Where, where I was this living sacrifice, burning for Jesus, and Jesus had it all. He had all of me. And listen, whether you want that to be you, whether you used to have that and you want it again, listen, it can be yours again. Listen, you just bring Jesus what you got. You bring him what you got. You offer yourself to him day by day and just give your life over to him one more time. Jesus, I'm offering you my relationships. Jesus, I'm offering you my children. Jesus, I'm offering you my finances. I'm offering you my work. I'm offering you my time. Jesus, I'm offering you my life. This is the opportunity for us today to say to Jesus, what I have, I give. Listen, we we not only need examples like this godly woman in Mark chapter 14, but let me let me just put it to you straight here today, okay? We need to be these kind of examples for others. We need to be these kind of examples. We need to live the kind of sacrificial love lives where people understand, oh, this is what it means to follow Jesus. There's no holding back. There's no restraint. There's no Jesus gets Sunday at, you know, 1030 and maybe a little bit more time in the week, but the rest of the 168 are mine. That's how many hours there are in the week, just keeping up there. It's like, 
We need godly examples. And, and surely, listen, surely this, this story is for all of us. It's for women and men. But I want to speak to the women in our church, the women who are hearing this word today. Listen, my life has been influenced by so many godly women. I think about my mom. I already told you about Miss Phillips. I think about uh, Charlotte Aiken, who I worked for for six years in grad school. And these, these women who loved Jesus, they were devoted to prayer. They poured out their lives, serving others, doing great things for the kingdom of God. Yes, we need godly men in our church. We need godly examples of men who are laying down their lives for the kingdom of God. But listen, women, we need you to be examples of encouragement and inspiration as you follow Jesus day by day by day. Don't underestimate the influence that God wants to give to you, not because you are so great or special, but because the Spirit of God lives within you and the, the, the friends that you have and, and the, the people in your workplace. And if you have children, your children, or if you're married, your husband, or just whatever stage of life. Listen, whoever your life touches, you have the opportunity to influence and what an example we have here of extravagant devotion for, yes, you women, to say, listen, I want my life to be like this. Jesus, I'm holding nothing back. These verses call us to imitate the extravagant devotion of true followers of Jesus. Imitate the extravagant devotion of true followers of Jesus. We, we see this example here in the woman, but as sure as she is a magnificent example of extravagant devotion, yes, we find the greatest example in the example of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we find in verses 12 through 25. Verse 12 continues and it says this. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after the other, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What we find here as we move forward in Mark chapter 14 is that we have moved from Tuesday evening to Thursday. 
Thursday was the day that Jews made preparations for the Passover meal. It was the day when they sacrificed the lambs in preparation for the Passover meal. And what we need to see as we begin to work our way through this section is first that Jesus is in complete control. We know that he has just told everyone that he is really clear on the fact that he is about to give his life as a ransom for many and to die in our place on the cross. And yet he has complete composure. He knows that God is in control. He knows that God is working out his plan. He is resolute to go to the cross. And so he's saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to partake of the meal. And what you're going to do is this, and I love this. We, we can't be sure if this is Jesus with divine knowledge saying, hey, you're going to go into the city and you're going to meet a man who's carrying a jar and you're going to follow him and then you're going to the house and you're going to say to the master of the house, hey, where's the place where our teacher can you know, serve us the Passover meal? Or if these are preparations that Jesus has made beforehand because he is planning to go into the city where Jews would have wanted to partake of the Passover meal, it's probably a bit of both. In fact, it, it almost seems that as Jesus is saying, hey, uh, when you go into the city and meet this man with a, with a jar, it's like, this is like divine knowledge. Like he knows that they're going to walk into the city and when they walk into the city, there's going to be this man who they need to follow. But then as the story unfolds and the man has the room prepared, it seems that maybe this was orchestrated beforehand, that Jesus has it all planned out. We don't know that. We can't know for sure. But what we can know is that the story unfolds just as Jesus says it will. And there are two key elements of the story that we need to, to grasp as we move through this section. Number one, we see that Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his closest followers. But then number two, as they partake of the Passover meal, Jesus redefines it in light of himself. So let's, let's look at this together. Number one, it says that he was betrayed by one of his closest followers. When, when they came to the room in verse 17, verse 18 says that Jesus, while they are eating, says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Now, you need to understand that the Passover meal was a meal of celebration. This was a time of rejoicing and thanksgiving and celebration because the Passover celebrated the time when God led his people out of oppression in Egypt and took them on a journey to the promised land. So everyone in Israel loved to celebrate Passover. It even says in an ancient Jewish document that the poorest of Israelites must recline at Passover and be given four cups of wine to drink. So I mean, it's like everyone's included on this. Everyone gets in on the celebration. But on this occasion, Jesus knows his death is coming and he knows that it's going to be executed by one of his own disciples who is going to give him up to the authorities. So he says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples, as you would expect, they become very somber and sorrowful. And they begin to ask Jesus one by one. They go around the table, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And Jesus answers, and he says this. He says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. This, this, uh, this phrase, that one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, it shows and highlights the, the friendship, the intimacy that they were enjoying here at the Passover meal and how that one who should have been Jesus' closest and most loyal friend actually is in the process of betraying him and becoming his enemy. And the words that Jesus uses here echo Psalm 41 verse 9 where it says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who has shared my bread has turned against me. 
This is the worst kind of betrayal. The closer someone is to you, the more you feel their betrayal. And then Jesus shows us how serious and grave this is in verse 21. Look at this. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, just as God promised to send a deliverer who would be a substitutionary sacrifice and die on behalf of the many, pointing us back to Isaiah 52 and 53 and other passages, Psalm 22, where the Messiah would be the sacrifice for our sin. He goes on and he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now we need to let those words fall on our minds and hearts just for a moment. Jesus says, for Judas, who is going to betray him, it would have been better if he had not even been born. And this is, this is still true. Listen, this is still true for anyone who would turn their back on Jesus and betray him. For everyone who ultimately rejects the gift of life and salvation that Jesus offers us through his life, death, and resurrection, the Bible would say, listen, it would be better for you to have not even been born. And I know that's heavy. I know that's hard for us to even consider the gravity of that statement. But listen, what it's simply saying is this, is that it's better not to live than live and live forever apart from God. It's better to, to have not even experienced life than to not experience abundant life now because you place your faith in Jesus and eternal life forever because you place your faith in Jesus. Because if we reject him, we will be separated from him forever. Yes, we believe, we still believe, yes, that there is heaven with God forever and hell without God forever. And yes, we know where we want to be. And so listen, if you've never turned back to God through Jesus, there's an opportunity for you to do that today. So that what is said of Judas wouldn't be true of you, but that so that you can experience life that God wants you to have through Jesus Christ. Jesus will be betrayed by one of his closest followers. But then as they continue eating the meal, Jesus begins to redefine the significance of the Passover meal. Again, the Passover was a time of celebration. The Passover was a time when the people of Israel remembered how Egypt, under the evil rule of Pharaoh, had enslaved the people of Israel and forced them into hard labor and would not let them go, would not set them free. And so as the people of Israel cry out to God for deliverance, God hears their prayer and he begins to send these plagues one after another on the people of Egypt. And it's amazing that plague after plague comes, one, two, three, four, five. Pharaoh is, it says his heart, heart was hardened, that he wasn't receptive to the instruction and voice of God. He wasn't receptive to the plight of his people that are undergoing all of these plagues. And so one, two, three, four, five, five, six, seven, eight, nine, plague after plague after plague. He doesn't let the people go. But then God says, hey, he's going to let you go. This is going to be the, after the ninth plague, Moses, you're going to go talk to him one more time. And it's going to be the last time you talk to him because after I send this 10th plague, he is certainly going to let you go. Because the 10th plague was beyond our ability to imagine in terms of its horror and devastation. You see, God sent his angel of death in the 10th plague to take the firstborn child from every Egyptian household. The firstborn child died because of Pharaoh's evil, oppressive leadership and the experience judgment of God. But as the angel of death was passing over the, the land of Egypt, God said, listen, for my people who sacrifice a lamb, 
and take the blood of that lamb and smear it over their doorposts, the angel of death will, yes, pass over that home and the life of the firstborn child will be spared. This is exactly what happens in the 10th plague. This is what allowed the people of Israel to go free, to march on their exodus to the promised land. This is how they experienced salvation. This is how they avoided the death that was coming to the land of Egypt through the faithfulness of God. And so as Jesus is now remembering this meal with his disciples, he probably would have recounted the Exodus story like leaders of Jewish homes would have done. And then he would have led them in singing the Halal Psalms, Psalm 113, 14, 15, and then 16, 17, and 18. And, and, and as the meal went on, Jesus begins to press into the significance of God's deliverance, and he begins to, listen, redefine the significance of God's salvation by putting it in terms of his own purpose and calling to bring God's salvation to the world. That Mark, listen, that Mark wants us to see this moment as a new Passover is virtually unquestionable. And you say, Tanner, what are you talking about? Well, in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 16, Mark refers to this meal as the Passover meal. There is no questioning that Jesus and his disciples are partaking of the Passover meal. But when Jesus gets to the bread and breaks the bread, what would have happened in Jewish homes is typically they would have said something like this. Um, as, as they were eating, the leader of the home would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat and let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. But now in verse 22, Jesus says that this is my body, take and receive. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing to his death and he is saying that I am going to give my body on a Roman cross for the sin of the world and I am your true deliverance. And then he moves on to the cup and he takes the cup of wine, which would have reminded them of that sacrificial lamb and the blood that was smeared over the doorpost that allowed the angel of death to pass over the people. And he would say, this is my blood shed for you. My life is given for you so that you don't have to experience death, but so that you can experience life through my death. And with these words, Jesus, listen, is not only pointing to his coming death, but he is pointing us to the new covenant that God is establishing with his people forever. We find this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus is saying, all of the promises that I made hundreds of years ago to relate to my people in this permanent, intimate, unbroken way where they can have their sin forgiven and I will remember it no more. That time has come. It has come right now. Jesus is going to the cross to establish the new covenant that comes through his death. 
And so I just want to invite you, listen, we're going to do something we've never done at Redemption Hill uh, since we've, you know, started our church 10 years ago. We're actually going to partake of the Lord's Supper together right here before we end the sermon. And we're doing this because we want to remember what Christ has done for us, that he has given his body for us, that we might receive his life, that he has shed his blood in our place so that we do not have to face death, but we can have life. And so listen, if you didn't receive one of these, uh, these cups, I'd just love for you to raise your hand and our connections team is gonna help you out uh, by delivering this. But, but listen, I, wanna, I really wanna encourage you as, you, as you consider sharing this, this meal symbolically with Christ today, I want to ask you, have you received the life, the extravagant devotion that Jesus has offered you through his life, death, and resurrection? There is, without a shadow of a doubt, a need in each one of our souls to receive the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we don't measure up to the standard that God has for us because we have sinned. We have gone our own way. We have deviated from God's plan, chosen our own wisdom and said, God, I've got this. I'm gonna do my own thing. And the consequences for our sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. For the wages of sin is death. This is not just physical death one day, but it is spiritual death now and forever if we do not turn back to God through Jesus Christ. That's the really difficult news of the story of humanity and the story of the Bible. But the really, really good news we find in Romans 5 verse 8. It says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So that if we place our faith in him, if we confess Jesus as the Lord of our lives, if we turn back to God and follow him and say, like the woman who poured the ointment over Jesus' head and like the disciples who would, many, most would ultimately go to their death and die for Jesus themselves. If we would say, Jesus, my life is yours. You are better than anything that life can give or death can take away. You are my Lord and my God. Listen, if you have said that to Jesus, then you have life in him. And if you have not yet said that to Jesus, you can say that to him today, right now. And so what I wanna do is invite you, if you have received Jesus as the Lord of your life, I want you to take out the little wafer and remember that this is the body of Christ given for you. Take and remember his death on your behalf. And as we just read, Jesus also poured out his blood on the cross so that we might find life in him. So let's Remember the blood of Christ shed for us. And as you partake of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you can see that a meal that began with sorrow ended in celebration. A meal that began with grief ends with hope. We see this in verse 25 when Jesus says this, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is, listen, the story of my life does not end in death. The story of our friendship will not end on Friday when I die on a Roman cross. But we will renew our friendship and I am going to bring a new kingdom and it's going to be the kingdom that our hearts have always longed for. 
A kingdom where there is, Revelation tells us, there is no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more cancer, no more viruses, no more sin, no more deprioritization of God. And even to say, right, but who cares? Listen, there is only going to be worship and life and harmony and peace and joy and celebration in all of the things that we want. Yes, Jesus is going to bring it. Do you long for it? Are you experiencing it now? Yes, not fully, but in part. Listen, that is what is coming. This is a meal of hope. Jesus, through his extravagant devotion, goes to the cross so that we can have life and so that we can experience eternity with him forever. And so as we wrap up our time and as the music team comes up to lead us in a song of responding to God and his extravagant devotion. I just, I just want to encourage you with this. Let your life be marked by extravagant devotion. Let your life be marked by extravagant devotion. In light of the extravagant devotion of Jesus, let your life be marked by extravagant devotion to Jesus. In light of his love, we love. In light of his joy, we experience joy. In light of his forgiveness to us, now we forgive those around us. Listen, it's all found in this moment when Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf. We live a cruciform life. We live a cross-centered life. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives within us. The life we live, we now live in the body by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This is the life we live, a life of extravagant devotion. And so let's pray and let's call on God's name to help us live with this kind of devotion to him. Father, we ask that in these moments, you would lean our hearts into your heart. That you would help us lay our lives down to give up everything and anything that stands in our way, Lord, that we would live a life without restraint, without holding back in light of who you are and what you've done for us. And so God, help us to remember the cross of Christ. Not just today, but God, may the cross be before us every day. That's what the writer of Hebrews said, that, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus, we remember your sacrifice day by day by day. And in light of your extravagant devotion, God, we want to live lives extravagantly devoted to you. So God, help us, help us, help us live for you in every way, every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.